As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Every so often, I come across a thinker or scholar or an academic that literally revolutionizes the way I think. And today we have such, that's, we have such a scholar, Professor Alana Lentin. Thank you so much for joining us on The Malcolm Effect today. Wow, thanks for the introduction. <laughs> it's very kind. No, honestly, the, uh, your articles that you sent me <laughs> have made me think so much about race. And I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure this episode is going to be an episode in which we kind of unpack it. And I hope the listeners are going to go away or leave this episode after listening with, you know, f- new ways of thinking about race. So I know this is a bit of a trick question in many ways, but I'm going to mm. ask you. And it's funny because we use it so much. But what is race? Ah, that's my favorite question. <laughs> I'm going to throw that back to you, or rather, I'm going to I'm going to pose the question slightly differently, and I think this helps us. And I, yeah, I think you know why this is a trick question because I think you already know the answer if if you've read my work. But also, <laughs> I have to say, I have to say that via your podcast, I've learned so much. So I know that you've spent a lot of time engaging in these questions and answering them, or having really fruitful conversations that lead towards answering them. So really, the answer to the question mm-hmm. is not what is race but what does race do in other words what is race's function and that's what i guess we're going to unpack today and i think just to 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 introduce that i think as soon as we start to think about race as doing something rather than being something then a whole world of possibilities opens us to us in terms of our analytical capacities and why we should think with and against race as i like to say absolutely absolutely i think what when we often think about race or how we've come to understand many people, quote unquote race scholars or even reactionaries, mm. trying to move it away from its biological underpinnings or, you know, they're trying to yeah. say, oh, well, race is a social construct. But race is a social construct. And then like, but mm-hmm. that doesn't say what it does. Yes, it says it's not bi- biological, but it doesn't say what its function is still. So why do you think then, and I've read your work as well, but just for our listeners, why is saying race is a social mm. construct not really sufficient? Well, I mean, I think the problem is that it's not that race isn't a social construct. I mean, clearly race is something that's constructed. Any of us, I I presume that most of the people listening here don't think that there are real biological or genetic differences between groups who have been conceived as races or have been called racial groups, right? We understand that there's a process Mm -hmm. called racialization, which brings forth racial groups, which conjures them up. And I think we also understand that there's, you know, that there's a reason for that. And the reason is intrinsically about domination and exploitation. So we understand all of that. We understand that we live in a white supremacist society, a white supremacist world, the modern colonial world yeah. system. And we understand the, ro- the role that race plays in that. But we still have a trouble when we try to understand, well, what is this thing race and what function is it performing within all of those, you know, within that system? And so we we try to talk about race being socially generated or socially produced or socially constructed. But when we try to say, well, what does that entail? What does that look like? Very often we have this kind of circular reasoning coming forth. And I take this from 
Werner Hesse's work, who I think is also relying on Ian Hacking's work on the what is the nature of social constructionism. Basically, the question with regards to race is we say, well, what is race the social construction of? We say race is the social construction of the biological idea of race. So uh, Barner Hesse, in a nice debate with the late Charles Mills from, I think it's 2012, says, well, that kind of gets you back to your starting point. Because if what you're really trying to do is say, well, there's no such thing as biological races, these things don't exist, you can't go back to the starting point of, well, the purpose of putting forward the social argument is to say there's no biological argument by going back to the yeah. biological, right? So, <laughs> so, so what we really need to do is take a step away from even this idea that race is intrinsically or inherently anything to do with biology at all and take steps Mm. several centuries before people were even starting to think in terms of biology and think well race was already in operation but it was using other tools in order to enact domination basically if we want to strip it down by Europeans against non-Europeans in order to create this delineation between Europeanness and non-Europeanness, which is the intrinsic, you know, what Du Bois later on calls the color line, doesn't necessarily always go along lines of black versus white, which is one of the central axes on which race operates, but isn't necessarily the only one. But that's its primary purpose. And then what we need to do is think very precisely, and this is the job of all of us here, you know, like not, there's no one person who studies race or who acts against race who can do this job. There's so many different ways in which race is enacted. So then our job as a, as a you know, totality, a group of people who want to do this work yeah. is to then go in with a fine tooth comb and say, okay, how and why and where and when is this happening? Absolutely. And I think you made the point about naturally we can see we can recognize difference but then however Mm. it's the meaning we assign to that difference do you mind unpacking that further yeah yeah I mean this is something that I get from Stuart Hall and he you know he always had quite a humorous way of putting things which always really helped his audience or his readers to understand I think and he said I recall hearing him saying this or or in some talk or something but at least this is what it conjured up for me like so I often say this to my Mm -hmm. students you know very often people will think that talking about the fact that somebody is black, for example, is racist in and of itself. So we've come to understand racism as being about pointing out difference, that somehow the key to an anti-racist future would be, you know, colorblindness to think, well, actually, we're all intrinsically the same. And if you think of kind of the mainstream, you know, liberal approaches to anti-racism, it's all of those kind of cliches about, well, if I cut you, you know, we all bleed, etc. Remember, you're probably too young, but when I was probably your age, there was the Benetton ads, you know, you'd have a picture of three hearts and the idea would be that, you know, one is black, one is white, one is something else and everybody is the same, et cetera, et cetera, right? So so the point is, Hall says, it's not pointing out difference, that's the problem. Difference exists. Humanity is inherently different. I mean, just look around and have a look at what people look like. And if you have ever watched his talk, race the floating signifier it's really fun because it's kind of like a late 1990s graphics and he'll have like you know this Mm. pictures of uh, the media educational foundation that made this this sort of video on the basis of his talk 
And there's this kind of funny graphic of like, you know, there's a black face and there's a white face. And, he, and Hall says something in the lecture like, we can really tell this person over here on the left is black and this person over here on the, on the right is white. And then he said, but what about these other faces? And there's all these people who are, I suppose, racially ambiguous and they kind of float around the screen mm-hmm. and they swap places and they go all over the place. And, you know, it's, it's, as I said, it's kind of a bad example of, you know, kind of the graphics we would find cringeworthy today. But his point is like, you know, as soon as you try to affix people and you say, well, you go over there and you go over there, that's race doing its work. The entire purpose of race as a project of rule is in order to create these classifications. And we know that these are often quite spurious. That's what he's trying to get us to see with the, you know, this video is like, have a look at the evidence before your eyes. The point here is not that people look different to each other. The point is that the driving force of race is to try to pin them down and to say, no, you belong here and you belong there. And not only that, that there is connection between what you look like on the outside and what your, you know, your intrinsic worth is, right, as a human. And that's why yeah. somebody like Alex Wehelia in his brilliant book, Habeas Viscous, talks about the drive of race being to produce the human, the not quite human, and the non-human. So this kind of broad classification into these groups, which is about distance from or proximity to the essence of what the human is. That's super, super fascinating. But then you, not but, you've also said as well that you see race as a technology of power. Mm. So if race is doing this work of dividing people along, quote unquote, difference and then assigning meaning to that difference Mm. in order for what then? Well, I mean, basically, let's take a step back and think, well, what do we mean by race being a technology of power? I mean, a technology of power for what exactly? I mean, my definition is that it's a technology of power for the reproduction, for the production, reproduction and maintenance of white supremacy on a local and a planetary scale. In other words, it operates on the local Mm. level and it operates also in terms of, as I mentioned earlier, the modern colonial world system or this delineation between Europeanness and non-Europeanness. The function of this is in order to manage human difference in order to better exploit and dominate peoples. I mean, that's its primary function. So we, we bring forth an understanding or we propose or let's not say we, let's say white supremacists, uh, European colonialists, etc., propose that people have naturally designated functions in life, right? So we're all aware of this kind of yes. this idea that, you know, African peoples were, de- you know, were naturally destined to be enslaved, etc. It's obviously bogus. But as soon as we come yes. up with that idea that there's some kind of natural propensity of people from particular areas of the world to act and think in particular ways, and it can be much more subtle than, oh, you're supposed to be a slave and you're supposed to be a doctor or, you know, whatever it is. That's obviously nonsense. Yeah. But it can be much more subtle. So think about when we think in very concrete terms. And this is why I like one of the readings I sent you from Falguni Shaith, um on, you know, her her theorization of race as a yes. technology, because she brings it to the war on terror. And the production of the figure of the Muslim terrorist. And then when we think very concretely in terms of, you know, the British government's policy, the prevent policy, for example, the idea was that you go in early in order to prevent possible future terrorist activities. So you literally go into childcare settings. I mean, I know you're aware of this, but 
you go into childcare settings and you have a look at the drawings that the kids are doing and say, hmm, that thing there looks like it might be a bomb, you know, squiggle on the sheet kind of thing might be a bomb. And then you, you know, you, you, you go forth from there. And we've seen children from a very young age being criminalized. Same thing in the United States and elsewhere in terms of so-called, you know, gang affiliation. So black kids yes. being put on databases and some very, very interesting and really kind of um, disturbing work on kind of the the pinning down of people from a very young age as being having a propensity to certain types of behavior. So that's kind of what race does. It puts in effect a process where you are destined to have a particular sort of life. And none of that is to do with your personal abilities. It's all to do with this kind of totalizing effect of what happens at a population level or what's supposed to happen at a population level based on racial predetermination, right? So obviously, I mean, again, what's interesting about Shade's book is that she puts this in the context of liberalism. And she says, well, the reason why we find it so hard to tackle race is that we're trying to tackle it within a context where it's preached that everybody should be treated equally, that there's something called democracy and meritocracy. In other words, you know, everybody should be judged according to his or her individual merits. And then when we say, but hang on, there's some racism going on here, right? They'll say, oh, that's just a system error, right? Or (laughs) it's something that's come from the outside. It's a bit of a hangover from an old way of thinking. You know, the way people talk about, well, you know, you can't judge Kant as a racist because he was a man of his time, right? There's this idea that there was this kind of way of doing things in the past and we know better now. But actually what she shows are many race theorists have shown, people who focus on race within liberalism, race is fundamental to liberalism. Charles Mills is another person who I've mentioned before and who Shaith is deeply inspired by. So what they show is that actually race is intrinsic to the operations of the liberal order. It's under liberalism. So really from enlightenment onwards that you have a growth in racial domination. And part of the reason why it's been so, so successful is that liberalism is able to conceal its operations. So to conceal the operations of, of racial power or racial rule by saying anything that happens that's a bit racist is just unfortunate attitudes and isn't really what the system is supposed to do. Fascinating stuff. So let's talk about, let's talk about like the creation then. If it's technology or power, and we said what, we said for what? Mm. My next step is then, it must be, it's a creative phenomenon. Let's talk about the creation of blackness, for example. So Mm. how I've come to understand or think about blackness, that it's contingent on the historical and material processes that give it rise. Mm. That's to say, the fact that we have the category of black is only made possible through historical events that created it and give it meaning. So when I'm thinking about how you, when we say race is technology of power, what function does the creation of blackness serve in this in this understanding yeah i mean it it obviously links to what i was talking about before when we think about you know the idea that particular populations in this case african peoples uh, are destined to be yeah. enslaved by europeans are destined to be governed under a system of white supremacy and i mean there are very you know this is what i was talking about before the necessity to go in historically and contempt you know sociologically contemporarily and to do the research so if we're thinking about the production of blackness specifically within the transatlantic slave trade although you have yeah. blackness produced as the other of whiteness, if you like, before that. And I think it would be important to look at, for example, the production of race in the Middle Ages. So Geraldine Heng's work on this and other people as well. So it's not like blackness isn't thought of in any sense as negative before. 
slavery. I think that's important Mm -hmm. to say. But if we want to think about this on a mass scale, I think this is when it comes into play. And for example, you'd have um, Cedric Robinson in Black Marxism talks about when during the Spanish colonization of the Caribbean and the growth of the sugar plantations, you have a particular point in time in the 17th century, I think it is. I'm terrible with dates, but so you'll have to go and look it up. But a particular point in time when the indigenous, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say it openly, right? I'm terrible with dates and names, right? But anyway, the indigenous population is expanded, right? The indigenous population of the islands that were being, that had been invaded and, and, and settled in order to basically steal their resources and, ex- and exploit the local population. The indigenous people had been expanded. There simply weren't enough indigenous people to work within the industry. And it's at this point that you have the importation of African peoples to the Caribbean. And then we know the history uh, from there. And within, with so, so, so in order to explain the massification of that, you have to have this idea that black African people are naturally uh, supposed to be doing this kind of labor. And so that plays a fundamental yes. role. So that's the, the point of looking specifically and thinking under what conditions does blackness become solidified as the other of whiteness, right? So, I mean, it's really important to look also at the work of somebody like, I think Cheryl Harris talks about this when she talks about, you know, the one thing that white people knew, and she's inspired by Du Bois on this, the one thing that white people in the United States knew was that they could never be slaves, so their, their, their very being was predicated on not being black because black people were enslaved or had been enslaved, right? And part of what happens yes. after the abolition of slavery and the reason for which you have the institution of the Jim Crow laws is because certain black people were no longer at the lowest rung of society. And when you had middle class or you know black people who were doing a little bit better than poor white people, right, um, and they could be seen in spaces that were supposed to be reserved or had historically been reserved only for white people, it's at that point that you have Jim Crow instituted because it's in order to recreate that separation, the separation that reminds or ensures rather even the poorest of white people that at least, no matter how degraded their situation, they could never be enslaved. So basically, we return to you know, somebody like Lewis Gordon, the Africana philosopher, who talks about blackness as a relation, right? It's always in relation mm. to something else. Of course, he's getting this, in, to my mind, from Fanon, and he's one of the world's leading experts on Franz Fanon. And he's talking about, so when Fanon talks about how he came to realize his blackness, it's not that he's saying that he didn't know he was black, right? He couldn't look in the mirror and understand that he was black. What he's talking about is that in coming to France, right, in the 1940s, to the so-called motherland, because, of course, he was a product of the French education system of Martinique, which was a French colony, etc. It's at this point that he comes to understand the negativity that's associated with the fact of him being black. And from this point onwards, he starts to theorize blackness to, you know, to quote something like Du Bois as effectively a problem. You know, Du Bois asks that that famous question, what does, again, paraphrasing, what does it feel like to be a problem? What does it mean to be a problem? Essentially, that is the load borne by the descendants of slavery or enslaved peoples in the United States was this knowledge that they were intrinsically posing a problem in their very being. 
Absolutely. But the question then is, if we're taking like a class analysis then, mm. and let's take the American context, for example, we can see that all blackness is not produced the same. Or all mm. blackness isn't actually the same then. So the question then is, how is the various blacknesses produced? And how, for what function once again? Obviously, this is exactly what race does. Race tries to homogenize and create this idea that everybody who belongs to a particular group thinks the same, acts the same, has the same life chances, right? And it's, I think it's because of the power of race to not only set in chain all of these processes, but also as Falco Duchet again says, to conceal their operations, to hide, hide the way they actually work from view. Because of course, let's not forget that race is not something that's taught, right? It's often treated Mm -hmm. as a special interest subject that most people don't need to get involved in. It's also treated as something that we know what it is so we don't actually have to study it. So everything is done to ensure that we don't have a good understanding of how race works. And I would say as somebody who's been doing this work both as an activist and as a so-called scholar for 20 years, I still only understand the tip of the iceberg, like really. And I'm not just saying that to be falsely modest, like every really, really feel that because it's so embedded and ingrained in everything that we do. So then it seems to me only, I don't like the word natural, but it seems only only normal that, (laughs) I get a terrible word, you know what I mean, right? That, 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 (laughs) okay, that black people themselves or, negatively racialized people themselves, no matter what group they're they're purported to belong to, also fail sometimes to see the operations of race, right? And that's at, mm-hmm. it's at that point that you have a kind of a two-way mechanism where on the one hand, you know, people are constituting themselves as a racial group for very good reason, based on historically an act of resistance to their you know, being demeaned, degraded, and exploited over history. This is what, again, Du Bois talks about the badge of race this, that black people are forced to carry and that he says are is shared, in fact, with other groups of negatively racialized people who have also been forced to wear this badge of race that he says is one... It's, it's, a, it's a reminder of the long history of, again, paraphrasing, of degradation and disaster or something like that, discrimination and insult, I think mm-hmm. he says at one point. So, so race is something that people are forced to carry. And then you have this kind of unifying effect that solidifies around identification with the badge of race, right? And then from the outside, so that's sort of the internal process. And then the external process is, well, it's much more easy to manage in a, you know, in a liberal kind of environment, if you say, well, all black people are basically the same and you refuse to see the role that class plays to internally divide and segregate people within yeah. the so-called black racialized group. And that's why I think, you know, if you want to take it to the contemporary politics of representation, you can have quite upper class black people or well-off black people or maybe people who grew up not so well off or have become middle class, etc., representing people with whom they have no shared life experiences anymore. I mean, it's the same in any yep. group. It's the same with among white people. You know, when you have, you know, rich white politicians representing, you know, pretending that they're working class or having the interests of the white working class at heart, we know that actually they're a million miles away from, from, their, um, from their reality. Yep. So, and that's race in play there as well, because what's being expressed there is, of course, white solidarity and a collapsing of class reality from, you know, and, and a kind of a shielding of it from view in order to create, again, a divide between the black and white working class as if the, the, as if white people were the real working class and black people were and other racialized people were interlopers there. 
Exactly. So, I mean, from what I'm hearing then, we know that capitalism requires difference. We know that capitalism requires the differences of division of labor in order to justify exploitation. How is what you're saying different mm. to the process of, of, of race, of what race does? What's, di- what's the difference between capitalism difference? and race? Yes. Well, I mean, you know, again, <laughs> I mean, Ruth Wilson Gilmore would say that all capitalism is racial capitalism. And so I think, you know, I subscribe to that view as well. I don't think that it's very useful to see capitalism over here and and race over there. I mean, that kind of, let's call it the white left view of the white Marxist view that race is always always kind of an ideological disturbance. It's always kind of (laughs) something that is supposed to distract from the real purpose, which is unifying the universal working class. Everybody knows that this is a complete, it's not only kind of an abstraction or or a distraction rather from the reality where in rich societies of the global north, the majority of the working class is black and otherwise uh, negatively racialized. I mean, that's just a fact. But it also isn't historically accurate because you can't have any analysis of capitalism that pretends that the operations of race weren't fundamental to it. So if you're a follower of Cedric Robinson's argument in Black Marxism, he would say, well, we can look at the internal workings of of early capitalism, nascent capitalism within Europe, where how you were, what kind of labor you performed was racialized and, and that migrant labor played an enormous role in kind of creating insiders and outsiders and the early idea of nation states. So who could properly be here and work and who was coming from the outside to usurp our labor? And we see, I mean, that's very consistent with contemporary arguments against immigration, that there are our workers and then there are these other people who don't deserve to be here. They're economic migrants in disguise and all this kind of stuff, right? So... And then if you take it from there and and then you actually look, well, how was capitalism able to grow exponentially and become the dominant world system that to this day, you know, basically um, dominates, dominates globally? It's only through a the theft of land from indigenous people which is the biggest resource that capitalism yeah. has, and B, the enslavement of African people and indigenous people and other indentured people who were put to work as indentured laborers for the enrichment of the European imperial core. I mean, that's just a historical fact, right? So as soon as you start yeah. to think, well, we can talk about capitalism without talking about race, then you literally don't know history, to my mind. Absolutely. And I think it's pertinent here that the, the, the idea of primitive accumulation doesn't really stop, does it? No. Um, and and I think it's very important that to note here that even the process of primitive accumulation is also a racialized process. Extra, uh, the theft of land, and then you need people to work that land. And the, <laughs> so yeah. even the and obviously Marx says how did capitalism start is to start through primitive accumulation. So that process mm. is inherently racialized. Capitalism was was created by a racialized yeah. process in many ways. Mm. What? Are, yeah. Okay, shifting gears a little bit. You mentioned uh, on, in the article that one of the articles you sent me, you, talk, you spoke about Fanon and you spoke about Fanon, you know, you mentioned a bit on this podcast, but you also said Fanon and the issue of lived experience. Mm. And you said that Fanon obviously see him, and then you also mentioned the boy's double consciousness. So Fanon was able to see himself, but also see himself through the, the lens of white people. Yeah. And that led him to use, however, it's interesting because you, from what I'm reading, I don't know if I'm correct on this, but it's also that led him to reject any ontological claims of race because of that is that correct yeah i mean basically let's let's break it down a little bit i mean this is about fanon's elaboration of the idea of sociogeny right 
which is basically yeah. his way of talking about what well, we might call it social construction, but he's talking about this not just in terms of race or other processes, but really everything, right? So everything is socially produced. In other words, everything is produced through a relation between human beings. Yes. And, you know, indigenous people would say between us, the earth, and all sentient beings, right? He yes. counterposes this to the white European way of looking at things, which is that you can study a singular organism, right? So that's the ontogenic way of looking or ontogenetic way of looking at things. And that you can extrapolate from that to the level of the species, the phylogenetic, right? But that you don't have to actually think about this idea of the relation. So everything is produced through the relation to systems, to other people, to the world in which we live. So that's what he's trying to get to grips with. And he comes to this realization, as I was saying earlier, when he is thrown into the white world. So Sylvia Winter, in writing about this uh, in her essay, talks about the fact that it was only the fact that Fanon could move from Martinique to France and could have that experience that wasn't open to all other black people in Martinique because they didn't have the status that he had mm -hmm. that allowed him to move, that allowed him to become clear on this, on the importance of sociogeny. And then she says, when we, when we take this to be at the core of how we come to understand how Fanon starts to understand what it means to be black, right? So he talks about, in the English translation is the lived experience of the black or otherwise it's, it has other translations, but the literal translation of the French title of chapter five of Black Skin, White Masks is the lived experience of the black. But the way Sylvia Winter puts it is much more interesting because she says it's about the lived experience of being black, right? So there's this notion of being, which is really important, which is not necessarily in the ontological sense, but in the sociogenic sense. So like literally what is my experience or what is a black person, in this case Fanon's experience of moving through the world and being interpolated in specific ways by other people. So one of the, at the core of this chapter is when a young child points him out, you know, everybody's aware of this, points Fanon out to his mother and says, look, mummy, N-word, okay? And it's at this point that Fanon, you know, kind of realizes, or at least that's in the telling, in the retelling of it, realizes the importance of this relation. And therefore, when he talks about lived experience, what he's talking about is not something intrinsic to blackness, which is often the way that we speak about it in a shorthand today. So if you think exactly. about, you know, the way lived experience has become this thing. Oh, we need some to get somebody with lived experience of being Muslim on the panel, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And so we think, and so then, and that comes back to our previous conversation about, you know, the lack of class uh, of attention to class. So then every, anybody yeah. would do because they're supposed to fill in for the authentic, you know, they can stand or they can represent anybody but what Fanon is actually saying no the experience is generated in the understanding of what happens when you understand how you are seen by others and that's the connection to of course Du Bois and his idea of double consciousness because he's talking about black people who are descendant from from slavery in the United States having the experience through necessity having to have the experience due to the need to survive right not only of what it means to be themselves but also how they are seen by others that's why he comes to say what you know what does it mean to be a problem because he understands that how he is seen by others is as a problem right but he said that this actually yeah. endows people with a second sight in other words this ability to see two things at once right and so that part of experience the lived part doesn't 
relate to some kind of authentic core of what it means to be black or Muslim or Jewish or etc., it relates to that relational part. So literally what is being lived. So you could always, I mean, it's funny because you could all, uh, you, you see what I mean? I you could always, you could, you could <laughs> yeah. always call it the experience experience because it's like a double experience, like yeah. the experience of being perceived by others or the perceived experience or something else, maybe lived experience. Possibly it's the, in the translation from the French that it doesn't necessarily come across and lived gives us this organic sense that then somehow links us to the idea of an authentic self or an authentic representative. That's been a complete, that's thrown off us off from the true meaning of what Fanon was trying to get at with this. Thank you. So kind of going back a little bit, but I want to unpack on further the kind of, when we see anti-racism work, I mean, I have so many issues. I mean, besides of the co-optation by neoliberal logics of, of all things anti-racism, somehow we can just teach racism out of people somehow. Or like, you know, we have the guilt yes. tripping of, of white people or the guilt tripping of, of <laughs> different groups of people. Oh, we have, you know, oh my God, I'm, I'm recognizing my privilege and I, and things I flipping hate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's all performative and sim- yeah. symbolism. How have we got to that? How have we got here to, to that being the dominant? Because it's very interesting. I mean, someone who's a bit of a controversial figure, but I like him many times, Adolf Reed. Adolf mm. Reed also says the way anti-racism is done today in terms of diversity and inclusion is actually also a class politic because it's about the petty bourgeoisie classes and middle classes of negatively raised people feeling a bit more comfortable. It's issue of, you know, focus on mm. microaggressions and things like this. So do you mind just packing that further for me? How have we got to this being the dominant way of how we deal with race? Yeah, I mean, I find it really, really interesting. And <laughs> I think the problem is that we don't study our history, right? We don't have mm-hmm. good studies of anti-racism. The left isn't very good at kind of writing about its own past. I was just mm-hmm. listening to a podcast, the Millennials Are Killing Capitalism podcast, and the latest interview, yeah. and they were talking about the fact that the state has a good memory because it's a continuation, but, yes. the, but the left doesn't have a good memory. We don't have, and I found that really interesting. So I think part of what happens is that we forget that there was mm. an onslaught a global onslaught, decolonization movements, black radical movements, indigenous radical movements, etc. right? That has been ongoing yeah. since they ever appeared on the scene, but with intensity over the last 50 years, okay? Particularly mm-hmm. if you want to look at the history of, you know, COINTELPRO, etc. in the United States, but this is worldwide, right? And so yeah. we forget that this, I mean, it's not that we forget, people know, it's not, I'm not trying to be glib about this, but there's been, let's put it yeah. another way, it's not that we forget, there's been an assault from on high to expunge the memory of those resistance movements from our contemporary knowledge, right? Which of course goes hand in hand with the fact that race doesn't get taught. And if you think yes. about what happened in the aftermath of the destruction of these movements, from, as I say, a top-down onslaught, then something has to replace it, right? And what replaces it yeah. is folding back into liberalism, which is all has always been there. If you think about the early abolitionist movement, it's a liberal movement, right? Am I not a man yeah. and a brother? Yeah. This kind of thing that's evoking the you know the French ideas of liberty, equality, and fraternity, and everything, which, as yeah. we saw, 
as people saw in the Haitian Revolution, suddenly, you know, wasn't so cool when the Haitians were were invoking it for themselves, right? So when yeah. well, after you have this assault on radicalism, you have a folding back in or folding back onto liberalism. And you have this done in a very purposeful way. And other people have studied this much better than I have in other locations. But let's take something that, you know, you're familiar with and probably many listeners are and something that, you know, is of more recent history. But if you look at the 1980s in the UK, right, and the Brixton uprisings of the early 80s, and then the publication of the Scarman report into the uprisings, and then what is proposed as a solution, what Paul Gilroy has written about this brilliantly in There Ain't No Black in the Union Jack, when he talks about the institutionalization of what he calls municipal anti-racism. So at this point, once the black movement has been effectively destroyed, due to a criminalization of people who were involved in the uprisings, you have this institution of, you know, sort of state multiculturalism, at which point people are given money to organize on the grounds of ethnic affiliation, right? Mm -hmm. And this, Gilroy explains, is in order to destroy black radicalism and to destroy solidarity between groups of differently racialized people and white working class people, right? And... This is the legacy that we're still living with, right? We're still living with the legacy of this kind of washed out anti-racism that's based on, you know, things like training, anti-racism training, which has sort of morphed into diversity training and kind of thinking about race as fundamentally a problem of culture, right? So Scarman in his report, for example, talked about the problem that led to the Brixton uprisings not being heavy-handed policing or an over-policing of, of young Black people, but being a problem at the heart of, you know, the Black family that doesn't have sufficient respect for, you know, doesn't whose culture is kind of non-existent, etc., and absent father figures yeah. and all those kind of motifs that were just basically parroting earlier things that had been said in the United States, right? And so yes. this is kind of, yeah, so we're left with this legacy of this idea that, you know, if only we get to know each other better, you know, if we have a bit more intercultural understanding, because race is basically a problem of culture. And if we only acknowledge that, you know, you, you know, that I, I don't exactly, you know, that this stuff about white privilege and so on, and that, you know, nothing is intentional and, you know, we've learned bad ways of being and, you know, we don't mean to be this way, et cetera, et cetera. And if we can just expunge that from our attitude or, you know, whatever, all this kind of absolute nonsense, then we can all walk off happily again into the sunset. And what I love is that in this current, much more recent time, I mean, in the last few years, there's been a real clap back to all of that from younger people like yourself, reading yeah. history and thinking deeply about the operations of power and speaking back to the ruse of this kind of liberal multiculturalist entry as politics, really, because obviously what this leads to is spaces in high places for a few black and other, other racialized faces exactly. and the majority of people being left out in the cold. Absolutely. So let's take things to couple world events that's taking place right now. So, mm. I mean, we've seen what's happening in Ukraine, for example, and we've seen what's happening also yes. with the British making the deal with Rwanda. So let's mm. talk about what is race doing here? What is race doing here? And I know Australia has a similar experience, doesn't it? I'm aware Australia mm. also has a deal in terms of where they're quote-unquote processing. And we know it's not processing because we know people don't make it back. Yeah. <laughs> people are sent there and they don't, and they people don't, they don't make peas. it back. People aren't peas. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So let's talk about Ukraine now. 
and I mean, I know you said that race is like the, the maintenance and upholding of white supremacy. Is that what race is doing here in terms of bordering regime, in terms of like, for example, the Ukraine situation? And we heard, look at all the reporters came out. These are not, quote, enter negatively racialized persons. These are blonde haired people and yeah. blue eyes. These are people civilized. who are, you know, we're not used to seeing the they're civilized people. So mm. what, what is happening here? Pack that, pack that for me. And also what's happening with, in terms of the UK, for example. I mean, for yeah. example, UK, apparently there's 35 million refugees in the world today. UK has about 0.2%. Mm. There's no refugee crisis in the UK. <laughs> it's a scapegoat, obviously. But yeah. why is it so powerful? What, does, like, what is race doing here? I mean, race is doing what it's always done. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of effort also from the Institution of Migration Studies and thinking about academically and the nexus, yeah. the, the, you know, if we could call it the Migration Studies Industrial Complex, if you like, but the nexus between Migration Studies <laughs> scholars and policy, right, and government and yeah. foreign policy, et cetera, et cetera, which is very tight and very, very problematic. And there's been a massive emphasis among mainstream migration studies scholars, but also within so-called critical border studies. I've been quite critical of this stuff to completely sideline the question of race as though this is some kind of distraction. And that's based, again, on this understanding of race very narrowly in terms only really of racist attitudes. Right. So people will assess race as being does somebody say they're racist or, you know, do they say racist things? And if they don't, well, there's no race involved, right? So obviously it's a complete, yeah. an utter, it's very irresponsible to say the least when we're thinking about people who have <laughs> links to, you know, but links to policymaking around questions that are obviously questions of race. But as soon as we're talking about who a nation state lets into its borders and who it excludes who it detains, who it deports, who it tows back and pushes back, and who it causes to die yeah. in their thousands in the Mediterranean, the Pacific, and so on, right? So that's why I'm talking about irresponsible. Yeah. It's actually politically criminal, to my mind. But I think it's yeah. important to point to what's going on, because it's a lot of money to be made Let's quite in terms of research funding within migration studies. And there's quite a few people who don't like yeah. me talking about this because they personally benefit from it. But I think it's really important to point that out, right? So obviously, yeah. when we come to a situation like Ukraine, that's going to leave a lot of people, you know, not knowing what to say, because yeah. things are looking very different. So if you don't think that race matters when it comes to bordering, right, then you can't explain yeah. the differential attitudes to Ukrainian refugees today, because you just don't have any mechanism for explaining why it is that Ukrainian People are rightly, by the way, being being welcomed with open arms and why it is that Syrians, Libyans, Eritreans, Somalis, you name it, are not. But you also can't explain, for, for example, within Ukraine, the differential treatment, to put it mildly, of Roma people, of black people. We saw the treatment of black students and Indian students, etc., trying to leave. Yeah. Right. Um, and you also, by the way, don't want to talk about the considerable fascist element within the, Euro the Ukrainian regime because yeah. that's very uncomfortable because these people are supposed to be the good guys right and i'm not you know i'm not a supporter yeah. of putin or or anything i'm obviously completely opposed to the war on ukraine that that goes without saying but you if and you likewise. don't mobilize race yeah right you shouldn't have to say these things but apparently you do if you don't mobilize race as a central axis around which all of this works then you simply are left being unable to explain the operations of power and force and it's obvious to me that Ukraine and its citizens are only being elevated within a global landscape in which 
you know, Russia has been cast as the only possible aggressor within a world stage in which yes. we know that that's simply not true, right? Which again, I mean, saying that doesn't discount the responsibility that Putin has for war crimes, invasion and so on. But it still is untrue to say that Russia is the only the only aggressor. I mean, how many wars are currently ongoing concomitantly with the situation in Ukraine? There are several, right? Exactly. Uh, and Russia is not to blame for all of them, some of them, but not all of them. So what you have is a kind of an orientalizing move where Russia, and you've seen this in headlines, I can't remember which magazine that kind of literally casts Putin as some kind of orientalist invader sitting on a horse, etc. Yep. And race is fully in operation there. And but at the same time is not spoken thereof. So things that the West would find absolutely distasteful to talk about in relation to Western regimes, mobilizing racist tropes, I'm saying, can be easily applied to both Ukrainian citizens who, again, are you know, construed as more civilized and uh, more adaptable to our culture, etc. And Russia, always the orientalized and therefore violent, like naturally violent other which is counterposed to Western democracy, uh, liberal goodness, and, you know, a culture of welcome. So that's why you'll have, if we want to then relate it to the Rwandan thing, you have British journalists throwing their hands up in the air and saying, how un-British is this? You know, which is just obviously hilarious in when we think about, you know, Britain's primary role in terms of colonialism and empire. Exactly, exactly. This has been an absolute masterclass, Alana. Thank you so much for this. I'm just, no, there's so many like light bulbs going off in my head. Oh, I'm, happy. I'm just thinking, I already know. No, no, thank you so much. I'm already thinking that we have to do, we have to, I'm going to get it on record. We have to do a part two in the near future. But thank you so much for this. Thank you. For I'm going to me. post, no, absolute pleasure. I'm going to post Alana's socials on the episode description please reach out or follow her uh, follow her work she's also on other podcasts as well she's also appeared with Deej who's another friend of mine on a calling episode yeah. which is absolutely fantastic I, I recommend everyone listen to that you're listening to the Malcolm Effect with Mama Do. please like comment subscribe and until next time peace out <laughs>